We've had advertising on a mass scale for well over 100 years. If somehow that hasn't been bred into your gene pool to like understand being able to process advertising on a large scale, I feel like maybe you are not chosen for in a Darwinian sense, <laughs> like at this point. I mean, I think a lot of it is that people don't understand. If you were sitting in a public park and you have a dog and you're playing with your dog in the park and then somebody else is sitting there watching the people in the park and they're like, oh, this guy has a dog. Let's market him some dog products. You would never be creeped out by that because you were in a public space and, you, and it's you, you have a sense of being okay with people observing you in a public space. Sure. So I think people only get creeped out because they don't realize that they're browsing around. They're is constantly being in watched. a park with their dog. Yeah. And their baby and their husband. But and once their you're aware of that, you don't have to worry. You're just like, yeah, duh, everybody's watching me. This is a public park. My phone is a public park. Title of the episode. Black Mirror That. <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. This week's show is titled Digital Space. We spend a ton of our life in front of screens. Our phones, our computers, our televisions, and our cars. Virtually everywhere we go, screens are there to greet us and represent one of our strongest links to the rest of the world. While we're on that screen, we often forget where we physically are and what we're doing. The world exists for us in a place that's in one way nowhere, and in another way everywhere. How can we talk about design using only the language of the physical world when we spend so much of our time in a digital world? When we are navigating a digital space, how does the digital environment change the way we feel? With the advent of augmented reality and other interfaces beyond screens, should architects and designers be taking this digital space into account during their design process? To help us answer that question and more, we're joined by Blake Scott, who is a senior software engineer at Microsoft here in Seattle. Blake, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks, great to be here. Also, full disclosure, uh, Blake and Rachel are a married couple, and so some special rules may apply for this particular episode. <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying, that's just something I feel like the public should know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether that's going to be a good for you, Blake, or if that's going to be bad for you, but we'll find out, I guess. Oh, it's always good for me. <laughs> Never a bad thing. You uh, do not only work at Microsoft, you have another gig, right? Yeah, actually, uh, Rachel and I for years have had a, our, our side project, uh, Emerald 7, uh, which is a design web development studio uh, based in Ballard. Very cool. How long have you been in Seattle? Uh, so we moved here right after graduate school, uh, wrapped up in 2013. And so we've been here for Kind of the peak of how things have grown and changed in such crazy fashion over the oh, last five yeah. six years oh yeah where did you move from so we were down in eugene oregon university of oregon and i'm originally from los angeles uh, mm -hmm. where i was born and uh, i've moved my way up the west coast over the years with a stint in dallas texas for about four years oh, interesting but i feel like we should let the record state <laughs> <laughs> Let's make sure we say that I'm from Seattle <laughs> and I finally dragged you up here. <laughs> Not kicking and screaming. It's like your favorite place. It's oh, absolutely. Fine. You just moved your way north. No, no, I, I, I absolutely. Uh, it was a conscious decision to move to the Pacific Northwest. Um, not just for graduate school, but because I was interested in the region and I really felt the draw back to the West Coast um, after having left it for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. But I, it wasn't like a Pacific Northwest immigration thing, like you married Rachel to become a Pacific Northwest. <laughs> 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 he, needed a green, he needed a green card, a Cascadia card. 
Hey, it gets you right past the Seattle yeah, freeze. I know, right? They're just like, no, 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 he married into it. Oh, God. Okay, fine. We'll talk to you. <laughs> no, I, I truly, I consider Seattle a home, and I have no plans of ever, ever leaving here. I love it. It was almost like you sought out the Pacific Northwest ahead of time because you knew that it aligned with things that you believed in, right? Yeah, absolutely. To find you know fellow people that believed in the things that you believed in. I'd say the classic did. principles and values that uh, yeah. you know are are known uh, from this region are things that I identified with and certainly sought out and embed myself in the, in that community. We chat sometimes and I once called you as a compliment. I called you one of the more New York people that I know. And I think that's because I'm from the East coast. I just find it super interesting because you fit it. Like you seem to love it here. You fit in so well and you love the culture at the same time. You do have like a little bit of this New York thing about you. What are like some of the biggest misconceptions do you think between a New York person and a Seattleite? What do Seattleites think of New Yorkers? Well, I expect you'll probably disagree with me on this, but I actually think that there's a ton of common ground between yeah. Seattle and New York. Seattle's just kind of a, a greener version of New York that isn't quite at the same scale. Similar in how you hear Toronto described mm -hmm. sometimes, except Toronto is often described as a New York, you know, 50, 80 years ago, uh, <laughs> or at least it used to be. I don't know if people still say that. And, and perhaps some of that New York vibe comes from the fact that I used to um, work in New York about a week, every couple months uh, mm -hmm. of the year. And I've been traveling there since I was about 16. And actually growing up on the West Coast, I was fascinated with the East Coast, particularly New York City and um, that region. The common ground really that I find between the two is that both are urban places where people kind of live in neighborhood type communities. And you don't see that in a lot of cities across the United States, mm -hmm. at least from my experience. Partially because you can actually walk in both. A bit hillier here and not quite as well gridded, but you definitely have an identity in each of these neighborhoods that's distinct. And the people within them kind of carry those flags proudly, let's say. Well, and you took that as a compliment. Absolutely. You weren't like, oh, Charles, yeah. he's so mean. Yeah. No, we were kind of commiserating. <laughs> I actually think the genesis of the conversation was we were like an addressy event, I think. And we were talking about how we like getting dressed up, which is a really innocent thing. And people in Seattle generally don't look for opportunities to go get dressed up. It's usually the opposite. It's like, can I wear my pajamas to this? No, social? <laughs> no more wearing pajamas to public events, people. No. You are right about the genesis. It is much more casual here. And I think that's really more of a West Coast influence than, than purely Seattle. But I've always, I've, ever since I was a little kid, I, I loved dressing up. I've always liked inhabiting different characters, so to speak. Yeah. And yeah, I used to get in the suit and the overcoat and uh, head into the office. Yeah. Uh, now I get to uh, wear whatever I want and flip-flops throughout the summer in the office, which is pretty nice. Yeah. It's funny. One makes me appreciate the other. It's like if I dress casually for too many days in a row, and when I say casual, I mean like really casual, it starts to not even feel good or special. It's just like, oh, well, this is what I wear. But when you switch back and forth a little bit, it makes both more fun. I yeah. Think. I think at most it's about um, giving people in a workplace the freedom to make their own decision about how they want to present themselves. And for a long time, there were these standards and norms that were dictated from above yeah. that make people uncomfortable. And you're going to do much better work. You're going to be much happier and, and more interested in what you're doing when you can be literally comfortable and make your own decisions and bring your own kind of true personality to 
to, so to the place. I went on the Bill Spidell tour at one point, the, the mm. underground tour, yeah, right, which is for people who don't live in Seattle, a very, very famous, like touristy thing. You go on this tour and people show you like some of the oldest buildings in Seattle and the history of Seattle. And there was this one photo on the wall of like this one, you know, guy with a big suit, like he looked nice and formal and I couldn't help but imagine people making fun of him. <laughs> like back in the nature, it's like, oh, who's this guy all dressed up? This is Seattle, buddy. Like in 1870 <laughs> or whatever. Like I just like, I could, I could picture the Genesis going all the way back. Uh, I won't tell the story now, but if you go on the tour, you learn all about the uh, sewage systems of Seattle. Oh, yes. Back they, in the day, it's, hilarious. It's bizarre how much of Seattle's history is focused on sewage. I was not quite prepared for that. <laughs> but kind of a, a corollary. Uh, Rachel and I were at a historic preservation event with Robert Meck, who was a guest on the podcast mm -hmm. a number of months ago. Uh, I think this was about two years ago now. And we it's in this old, old um, mansion in Seattle that's been preserved and what was interesting is this gets back to like early Seattle underground tour sort of thing. They had images from when they were constructing things up on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And you look in these images and they're they're rolling logs up the hill and, and it's unclear how they're doing it. And there's all this stuff on the on the what I thought was a dirt road. And you look yeah, closer and it's salmon. Yeah. And they're using the, the salmon to actually oil the roads oh <laughs> to get them up there. So I don't know. It's not related to what we were talking about earlier per se, but just the the natural resources of the region going back, pretty incredible, um, which really ties into one of the reasons that we were excited to kind of set down roots here, or Rachel returned to her roots, uh, was that this is one of those areas where creative professions have been able to flourish. You know, there's a similarity in New York because such a concentration of opportunity and resources mean that many people don't have to spend their time just doing that. And you can get into very mm -hmm. creative endeavors. Completely agree. Plus, it's so beautifully dark here all the time. <laughs> Best design happens in the dark. Yeah, that's what we say. Do you think it's the place that dictates the behavior? Or do you think that people are attracted to, for me at least, the massive swings in seasonality here yep. between the dark and the light allow me to have a real clear difference between seasons. And it helps kind of sequence out the year and what happens in different parts of the year. Yeah, that's possible. It's kind of the dark. It's not so much like it's a special thing about this city, but it's one of the largest cities that has such a long period of darkness. I like mean, that. when you don't have to focus so much on just being young and beautiful <laughs> and blonde on the beach in California. I don't know. Remember when Michael... It's so hard. Michael Ellsworth, who was on the podcast of Civilization... He mentioned he spent some time in San Diego and he had to leave because he just spent all of his time on the beach. He didn't get any work done yeah. or just any creativity. He was just like, it was too sunny and beautiful. So there was a case where a person was literally drawn here because he sought out an environment that would be more conducive to creativity. And For me, being from there, I never had an issue working in that uh, environment because I didn't know anything really different, at least prior to going to college and, and leaving the state. But what was most striking when I left was that it wasn't 75 and sunny every day. That, that there was variability and difference. And through that, you know, I find that exciting. It kind of feeds into diversity in any way it tends to be a positive thing. It helps to have triggers for different things when you're trying to be creative, right? If everything is always 75 and sunny, there's so much stasis in that. And we don't even have that much seasonality in Seattle. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like 55 and partly sunny. No, I mean, shh, it's never sunny. It's raining all the time. You guys, yeah, totally no. always raining it's and totally, terrible. Oh yeah. totally I, I haven't learned this part well enough yet. It's, yeah. it's like the sun comes out like all the time. No, shh, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, is that I think it's helpful for the creative process to have different environments that are forced upon you mm -hmm. by nothing more than the fact that you physically live here and 
this part of the year is going to be light and daylight until 10 and people are going to be out on the streets having a good time at 10 p.m. in full daylight. Mostly, yeah. Well, maybe that ties into constraints of any kind kind of encourage creativity. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's good to have those impacts that you can find a way to channel whatever you're designing at the time. So speaking of creativity and design and Seattle being a healthy Petri dish for new ideas, you're obviously in tech. This is a tech city. And it's funny, a lot of people point to, oh, this big tech boom that started with Amazon. And everybody seems to randomly forget that Microsoft started here quite a while before Amazon. Or Boeing. Or Boeing, but it's that's not well. It isn't as focused on digital technology. I know Microsoft and Amazon both, in part, decided to come here due to the actual engineering talent and the knowledge base of the people who were already here. And so, sort of the genesis of this subject really was since the advent of the internet as a publicly used thing, everything was always referred to in terms of places and spaces. An HTTP string was always an address from the very beginning. When your people talked about going forward and backwards in their browser from the very start. And so there was always at least subtly a spatial quality to being interactive in a digital way. And Rachel and I were talking a little bit about this before the show, that when it was just logging on to AOL and flipping through web pages, it was a little more two-dimensional. It was much more forwards, backwards. It had no Z-axis. But as soon as phones and apps and phone cameras and all of that came about, the game got changed a little bit in the way we think about interacting with technology and interacting with software. And I started to wonder, posing as a question, if... Three-dimensionality is thought of in a similar way to how an architect might think about a three-dimensional space. At first, it seems like, well, no, these are just pixels lining up. It's all just an image. But at the same time, I'm not sure it matters. I think maybe a three-dimensional space, even if it's perceived on a screen, can make a person feel the same way a physical three-dimensional space can make a person feel or not. These are all questions I had, and I was curious to hear what someone who programs Help me out here, Rachel. I was thinking I should interject too because you're a bit of a, of a unique case in this, right? So let's go on a little back tangent for a minute here. Blake and I are a duo of people that both have Master of Architecture degrees and neither one of us practice architecture anymore. Now, he figured this out before I did. Took me longer. That's a different story. We won't get into here. But a lot of people, you know, family and friends and things that were like, what do you mean? You you just went to grad school, (laughs) took on student loans to get this master's degree in architecture and you're not going to do this anymore. What does a master of architecture have to do with what you're doing now? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the short answer is everything. Everything about it has to do with both what I do now and what Blake does now. And I think it kind of gets at the kernel of what you're talking about, this intersection of how we experience spaces and and how we think about moving through spaces, whether we're moving through physical spaces or whether we're moving through digital spaces or how either one of those impacts our emotions, how we feel, how we engage with these spaces. That degree in architecture teaches you how to think about things in that way and how to experience and create space that we inhabit, whether they are digital or physical. So I studied computer science in college, and then in graduate school, I studied design. So I'm one of those strange hybrid type people. And when it comes down to it from an academic standpoint, I'd say both are disciplines that look at how to solve problems, how to identify a problem, define a problem, break down that problem, and then solve it in a way towards a solution. The difference I'd say is that generally in my engineering experience, it's more linear problems. There is an endpoint. There are ways to measure efficiency, performance. You know, how are you performing against the constraints of whatever context you're working in? 
Whereas design, it's more nonlinear problems where there are infinite solutions and those infinite solutions can be solved in any number of ways. And it really depends on the constraints and the definition of the problem that you put around it, as well as the outcome that you're looking for that guides your path. And so both linear and nonlinear, both engineering and design approaches are looking towards a solution that fits whatever goals that they've set out to begin with. But figuring out how to get there is the challenging part. What I find really interesting about exploring things in more of the digital space, so to speak, is that there are innumerable solutions. We see this with tons and tons of startups and you know, you have one or two that went out in the end in a particular industry or trying to solve a particular problem. But you need both sides, both disciplines, the right and the left, to come together to find that solution. So for me, a lot of it is about abstraction and philosophy when I look at these problems. What was the original question, Charles? (laughs) (laughs) I just went on a rant. We need a court reporter. That's okay. The original question was in the neighborhood of, is three-dimensionality considered by programmers? Absolutely. Especially when designing software that is interactive. So eventually you should have a professor from the human-computer interaction discipline over the University of Washington. They're one of the leading groups in the world in that area mm-hmm. on the podcast because it absolutely is. I mean, what I work in and what I specialize in in the software that I develop is really that interface between you your device and the thing you're interacting with. And yes, it used to be much more like a picture and you could touch things, but now there's actually physics that's built into how things scroll, how things move. All the time, you're trying to make this thing feel like it's rooted in the physical world. It Make it feel like it's something that's part of what is familiar. I think one of the things that you were talking about here, it's triggering all these memories from even before my architecture degree. Before that, I studied art history and visual culture studies, and we talked a lot about the picture plane. Imagine you're looking at a piece of art. Just go to some museum in your mind, and you're in there, and you're looking at all these big things, and... Depending on the era of art that you were in, whether or not the frame, this like literal frame around the picture, this gilt ugly thing or whatever it is, whether it acts like a window or whether it acts like a surface, are you invited into this window and you can see through it and you're in the same world as what is on the other side of this frame or whether there's a shift there and everything that you're looking at within the frame is not part of your physical space. Maybe the perspective is different or we're forcing you to have a disconnect between what is there or whether it's transparent. There's an interesting corollary, I think, when you think about, say, instead of that frame being an ornate gilt thing in a museum, but the frame is the edge of your iPhone or your computer screen. And whether or not we are inviting you into that frame and there's much more fluidity between our real life and what is happening on the other side of that screen or whether we're making a distinction between the digital and physical here. And there's been different trends. You know, the whole flat design trend was much more of a flat picture frame trend, Mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better word. Whereas now we have a lot of when we are introducing things like physics into how we scroll or how objects interact with us on the screen. And when when we start to introduce these real physics equations, like we're actually talking about they have physicists that calculate all this stuff, right? To make everything feel more real to us, we're trying to basically to get rid of that frame. Just be like, no, this is just all one thing. There is no difference. The frame doesn't exist as much. What I think you're um, alluding to is the longer term trend that we're seeing in technology where it's gone from we have a terminal, we interact with that terminal at a keyboard, we get input in, you see output from the screen. Mm -hmm. Before that, punch cards Mm -hmm. that are very physical. You have to make a real decision in any mistake. You're going to have to go and redo it. 
we're going from a very transactional relationship with technology to something where as we move towards the iPhone, it's dissolving more into our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And who knows how far that will go. Perhaps we won't have smartphones or other devices like that. And technology will just become embedded in the fabric of the world itself. And yes, when you look at the iPhone or your Android device or whatever your device du jour happens to be, and you're on a website or you're working with an app, you're working with buttons and views and sequences of events to make things happen and interact with others with devices. But when you turn that screen off and you put it in your pocket, it still is doing lots of things. And it is as much an extension of your mind and your memory and your habits and all the good and bad that comes along with that as anything else. And what we're seeing today is that that's just increasing with time. So I'm curious to see where interface design and development goes over time. I've always seen and appreciated the cross-disciplinary nature of the work that I do. And I'd say that software engineers are often miscategorized by pop culture. You often see the you know, programmer type that is extremely hyper-rational and it ends about there. Whereas I find that many of my colleagues are extremely creative individuals. You know, if you think about writing code, what it actually is, you're designing a language in real time with some basic rules of logic, which is how any language really works. And then from that, you're actually composing music in real time with the rules of tempo and the rules of scales and the various other pieces that go together to, to make music. And software is really much more like a symphony being played, except that you get to interact with it. It's funny, referring to physicality in the iPhone, in a way, correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't so much the touch screen as it was the accelerometer. The fact that you could move something in an analog way and change the parameters of a program. Or a... Yeah, touch screens have been around for a long time. Right, the right, accelerometer, right. various other sensors that it's are like in the there. The combination of the touch screen, the accelerometer, and the camera created almost this like magical mix of something that convinced your brain that there is this <laughs> seamless relationship between you and, and a digital space. Well, before then, it wasn't really as convincing. And then all of a sudden, as if overnight, it just was. Yeah, well, the you know economies of scale of production of mm-hmm. these small sensors yeah. have made it possible to embed these things in devices that we can carry around with us. And you know, to the degree that your phone is aware of the amount of light that it's receiving from its external environment at any time so it can make adjustments to what it actually shows you. For a long time, I've wanted to design a website that would be uh, temporarily adaptive mm-hmm. where you could opt into sharing your location. It would look at the time of year, the sun, the weather reports, and change the theme of the actual site that you see based upon the context of where you are at that time. I just saw a fascinating video just last night of a car, what looked like a car commercial. I don't know if you've seen this video yet. (laughs) It was just this guy swerving around and driving this brand new car. And then all of a sudden they snap their fingers and it turns into a different car and they snap their fingers and it turns into a different car. And then all of a sudden it becomes translucent and then transparent. And it's actually this car that is a rig that is used by car companies and movie producers production studios, virtually every car you see now in any car commercial or most of the movies that can afford it is literally just this virtual rig driving around Mm. and cars are simply mapped on it to a completely photorealistic level and they can just be swapped out and it's just this rig and that's all it is. It kind of blew my mind. Actually, this in a way links back to our last recording we did, which was about post-truth and about not being able to believe what you see. But that's a whole other. Yeah, I was about to be like this week on Charles has a troubling time with the commercial. (laughs) Yeah. But the accelerometer thing was really fascinating to me in retrospect. 
I did a very unwise thing recently. I was just telling Rachel, I binged Black Mirror. Black Mirror of all That'll shows. That'll leave a mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Black Mirror of all shows should never be watched in a back-to-back way. And if you did two episodes maximum, I did like a lot. Not even sure exactly how much. They take that introduction of the accelerometer to its extreme. It's not just that. It's our bodies, our eyes, everything becomes your interface with digital space. Plain and simple. There's just no seam. And what we think of now as augmented reality is just everywhere. Like right now, augmented reality is a much more basic thing. You look through your phone or through an apparatus you're wearing and you see something projected on the real world. But in Black Mirror, it's this seamless thing, which can be exciting, but also super terrifying. But I kind of choose, at least now that I've stopped binging it, I'm choosing to look back and see that as all these opportunities, exciting opportunities to alter space and change the way we interact with something as simple as a wall. And I'm curious to hear if you, having both an architecture background and a programming background, have some interesting insights into how that might manifest itself. Well, there certainly are famous thought leader types in the industry who spend a lot of time thinking about the future, you know, the Ray Kurzweil's. The uh, uh, Max, is it Tegmark or Telmark? Mm-hmm. Probably butchered his name, but he wrote Life 3.0. And mm-hmm. I believe he's at MIT and looks at here's where we're at in the progression of digital technology today. And things are starting to embed themselves more thoroughly in the real world. Mm-hmm. Next phase will be that we hybridize with them. That's one theory. I'm not sure how it will go. With a lot of the disruption that we've seen in our social, political lives over the last couple of years, It's really unclear to me what that march of technology will be into the future. As with anything, you have opportunities to leverage these things responsibly and opportunities for really post-apocalyptic futures. Life Mm 3.0, Max's book, looks at these different cases going into the future and how bad it could be. You know, in terms of if you design or general artificial intelligence emerges at some point in the future and it doesn't have the right goals set out from the beginning, you may end up with a system that optimizes for something that doesn't benefit us at all, perhaps the entire universe universe eventually ends up being optimized to manufacture paper clips or diamonds or something that has nothing to do with actual positive production of society. Mm-hmm. With that said, we're a long way off from anything crazy happening. Right. And the paper clip and diamond one was a classic one, but the book does a much better job of articulating it. For a long time, I've gotten closer and closer to my devices and more embedded in what I do. And I've recently, I don't know, last couple of years, taken a drawback. For example, we had Alexa and Google Home at our place to play with. So funny. Figure out how we could integrate them into our place, what kind of interesting things we could do. You know, perhaps we have lighting change from blue to red as we get later on the evening automatically. Uh, We can play music with our voices. But I, I find personally, I don't like interacting with devices with my voice. It feels strange today. I think it'll take a lot to get to the point where it feels natural. And perhaps that's my generational bias. I'm an elder millennial. So... Uh, Perhaps if I was introduced to a voice interface early on, it would feel natural and I wouldn't have that same hesitation. But after having Alexa and Google Home and some of the others up for a while, (laughs) just the self-consciousness of we're being recorded at every minute, whether or not that's used in positive or negative ways, it's device has to do that in order to determine whether it needs to make a decision to, you know, execute a command of some kind. That felt like too much of an invasion for us. And so I think it's healthy to view technology as a tool to accomplish something. And it should make life easier, not more difficult. 
So when you're talking about the physical world and architecture, I think there are a couple distinct opportunities uh, where technology is really awesome. And that would be ways to make buildings in the built environment perform more efficiently. You can create closed loop production and consumption cycles where technology really helps buoy the system and helps minimize a lot of the negative impacts that we see from waste generation. You know, 3D printing alone is something that if it was distributed at a community scale and you could buy licenses for the products that you wanted to print, you then return them to the source when they're finished and they're recycled back into use as other products. We could eliminate a lot of the problems that we're currently facing with things like climate change. And I really like to, I, I guess I'm, a, I'm always an optimist, Rachel teases me, but <laughs> I, uh, I like to look at technology and its potential to improve our day-to-day -day lives and bring everyone up. There are tons of opportunities in the physical world. Let's set the I'm, record I'm straight here. I'm over myself here. Not that I don't think technology can no, not at all. help not people. At all. It's just I'm more of like, oh, yeah, we all might also die. But that'll be fine. I mean, because then we won't know. It'll be fine. But. <laughs> well, I feel like especially after watching Black Mirror, all of the nightmare scenarios are definitely well sketched out for us all. I think it's really important for us to look at the nightmare scenarios. Yep. And I have existential crises on a daily basis sometimes. And then I'm like, um, hey, it's no big deal. It's fine. <laughs> we have this like weird balance between me being the pessimist and him being the optimist. And you're like, oh, everything's sunny and bright. I'm like, no, the world is over for sure. <laughs> For sure, this is it. And you're like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. Just hang in there. <laughs> the as much of an optimist as I can be is to be like, there must be a middle ground. <laughs> We're both right here. It's just there's a middle path. And it's that we can't be blind to all the things that are happening. And we can't be unaware of the technology that surrounds us. Right. We need to be engaged. We need to understand how technology is impacting what we do. If we're aware of the technology around us, we can harness it to our advantage. And if we aren't aware of it, then that's how we get creeped out about stuff. And I think it also plays into some of how much we can imbue humanity into things. Let's go off on a little side tangent here for a second. A lot of technology companies that are doing things like trying to build robots or whatever, I don't know, robotic pets, or maybe they're working on building robots for care of the elderly or things like that. There's a lot of reasons why we can have robots that can perform things that are really great for society. I'm not trying to get into any of this like, oh, they're robots are going to steal our jobs kind of stuff. I'm just saying like there are a lot of spaces where robots can take roles that are going to be really positive. But the only way that that will be successful is if we like them. Humans inherently want to like things. And if we don't have an emotional attachment or a way to like something, then it's like a lost cause, right? Maybe I'm dating myself, but it's okay because I'm younger than both of you. <laughs> but do you guys remember, what were those called? The little egg shape, the Tama, Tamagotchis? Oh, or Tama Tamagotchis. Tamagotchis, yeah. And it was like a scrappy pile of pixels that got people <laughs> to be like, oh my God, I got to wake up or it's going to die. They made us love them, even though it was super early technology. Whereas now we have so much more advanced stuff and there are ways that these robots are trying to endear themselves to us. But on the one hand, sometimes I feel like it's people are trying to teach the robots how to endear themselves to us. But the people that are programming the robots, they haven't figured it out right. So they're doing a bad job of endearing us to the robots. The Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley. Exactly. Yes. 
We can talk about that. I mean, you just described the Uncanny Valley. When something is supposed to feel real, supposed to feel natural, supposed to feel rooted in the in the real world, but it's a little bit off. And so you well, I thought look the, at the it Uncanny like, Valley was more about distance between something that is representational but different enough. Yeah, and it's about the creepiness that, that you experience. One hundred percent photorealistic, and that between those two points is the value. Yeah, yeah, it makes you feel between, uncomfortable. Yeah, the difference between like a person from Pixar's The Incredibles mm -hmm. and the digital Princess Leia from Rogue One that was inserted, which is like close to the other side, but that's for some people squarely within the Uncanny Valley. Whereas digital guy from Pixar doesn't bother anybody. Because it's different enough, but representational. Well, everybody probably has their own specific uncanny valley. Right. But like Homer Simpson doesn't bother anybody no, but that, being that, too close to reality. That description, yeah. I think, gets at the point. And I found the Princess Leia in Rogue One to yeah. be creepy. Right, right. <laughs> we were watching uh, Keegan-Michael Key on The Daily Show last night with Trevor Noah. And he was describing seeing, because he's in the new um, live-action Lion King adaptation. Right. CGI has come far enough <laughs> that he was describing people coming to see um, some rendered images uh, and the <laughs> rendered image was of uh, Pomone and Tumba wait Pumba and Timon Pumba and Timon yeah, there, you go. there you go and Simba all hanging out sleeping together he looks at it and he's like wait a minute the, the lion would eat them this couldn't be real what, what's going on here uh -huh. and that's pretty fascinating. I mean, if we look at that from your industry, architecture, mm -hmm. one, I would say that working in a 3D modeling program like SketchUp or Rhino or Revit or whatever your flavor happens to be is very similar to how you structurally think about building software where you're building things into these components that become Lego bricks that can be reused to build something larger and you piece them together towards something larger. Mm -hmm. And then you can apply another layer to that to render out based upon the rules of the natural world, what that would actually look like. It's interesting. I've never heard the uncanny valley in the same sentence, essentially, as architecture. We don't talk about that a whole lot, but it does happen, especially with clients. We talk a lot about how Revit, which is a little different in CAD and that it creates a 3D model as you design, as you create architecture. And it makes things look done very quickly, even when they aren't complete. And recently we started having limited VR sessions. And if you're done and you're very, very close to the finished product, it generally makes people very comfortable and very happy because they get to see what it might look like in reality. But if it's somewhere in a two schematic of a phase, it really scares people. They're like, well, wait, I, I'm not sure if this is how I want it to look. And it feels as if the house is built already or if their space has already been designed. It generates a certain amount of fear, even among some of our most adventurous clients. And it's fascinating to me. And I had never thought of that as an example of the Uncanny Valley, but it might be. Yeah, that's a good point, because actually, um, I think it's a language barrier, because there is a certain, I don't want to say that there is a language that is technology. So generally, there is a level of comfort with technology that will allow you to understand that even though you have the VR goggles on, you're looking at this thing, you're virtually walking through a space. I feel like if I take a wrong step, I'm going to fall to my death because I'm on the roof deck and it's scary. And when I look down, my brain is firing chemicals of fear that I'm going to fall and die mm -hmm. if I take the wrong step here. It's confusing for people that aren't used to that. And I think there's populations of clients that you know didn't grow up playing video games or mm -hmm. don't have familiarity with virtual reality in a way that it's harder to understand that it's so easy to do this stuff now. 
that we can do it as experimentation and that this is just a part of the process. And let's look at it in 3D. Let's walk around. Let's let's see what happens if we put this window over here. What if we put it over there? Mm-hmm. No big deal. I don't know. Let's fall off this rooftop. It's going to be fine. You're not mm-hmm. going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a complete mind shift for people to understand that it's easy enough to do this now that we can do it and redo it and throw it out and do it again and toss out and it doesn't matter. It's so fast. The, the pace that we can design things now and that we can experience things virtually is incredible and it's blowing a lot of people's minds. And so they get like a fear reaction to it. They don't feel good about it and it weirds them out. I think you're in part you're getting at the importance of the designer or the process of the team that is making something filtering before something is shown to a client. It's the same thing in in my world Mm -hmm. where it's really easy to make things look pretty, but they won't perform well. They may not scale well. There's all kinds of stuff that can be hidden behind the scenes. It's like if you have to take the temperature of a client, it's a bad metaphor, but it's like if you can understand at what entry point a person is into this world, it's a completely different experience. It's not really like a red pill, blue pill scenario, but it's like if you're willing to accept that things can exist and shift in this way, we can show you all these things and we go down all these paths and explore all these neat things but if that freaks you out then no you don't get to go through that door we're going to simplify things for you we're going to translate it in a different way we'll draw with some pens on paper Ah, so i think i have an idea of what you just said sparked it is that and you and i disagree on this i can't stand knowing the end of a story before yeah, I'm taken through the course the of a story. It's so much better. I firmly I am in the camp the that it is better to be told a story and taken along the journey than to know the ending and then start. Because it's fun yeah. to feel like an active participant in the process. Whether you're interacting with a building, whether you're interacting with a piece of software, anything that we make has a story embedded in it. And you're taken along the journey of that story by interacting (laughs) with it. And particularly if you're having something made for you that is very intimate, like a home or a a good example. So I, I work on a product called Microsoft Teams. And Teams is a product that's a collaborative piece of software. It allows groups to interact in real time in a way that you can't really over email. And you're able to kind of feel like you're part of this thing going along through time and you can follow the thread much like you can in your routines day to day in your home. You know, you get up, probably go to the bathroom, come back. Feed a cat, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped using the bathroom best. in 2012. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you strictly with the go girl? Right. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> it's a lifestyle thing. It's yeah. just. <laughs> well, um, we're getting close to being out of time. But usually this is around the time I ask people like, oh, what's your dream project? Blah, blah, blah. But I wonder, since you're an optimist and you're a programmer and you're trained as an architect, what maybe is your most optimistic view of the hybridization of digital space and physical space? That's a tough question. My initial response is that technology should be something that makes our lives better and easier and reduces friction. It shouldn't be something that eliminates privacy and hoards attention and all of the negative effects. The problem is that you don't often foresee the negative effects until they've happened. I think For us to move into the future in a positive way, it probably requires that we all try and become as educated as we can about the things that we use and what happens after we've had that interaction. In terms of the long term, I don't know. We're in a real kind of crazy time right now. 
And I don't think we have very much time to address some of the global issues that we face. And technology can certainly help mitigate the worst effects of things like climate change. I mean, you look locally and the affordable housing crisis that we face here in Seattle, what could be done to help that? It's not just going to be technology. It's going to actually be people getting together to find common ground and solutions so that we can move forward. Technology is just an extension of the decisions that we make as people. We think a lot about design. You really can't draw boxes around where design ends and development begins, or if you're programming, or if you're designing physical spaces or digital spaces, all this stuff. Like, it's really hard to draw boxes around it. And that's a good thing, because I feel like if you could compartmentalize all this stuff, that just means that you're kind of doing a bad job. The best design It's like you don't even know that it happened to you. It acts upon you. You didn't know that it had happened. And you're just like, oh, I just had a pleasurable experience. And you don't realize that it's because whoever designed that experience designed it so that you would have a pleasurable experience with this thing. And so the best design goes unnoticed. I mean, we talk about it amongst ourselves as designers and we congratulate ourselves of, oh, you did a really good job on this thing. Here's a trophy. But for most people experiencing things, the best design impacts their lives all the time. And this goes for tech and it goes for physical spaces, interior design, architecture, landscape architecture, site design, all this stuff. We feel better as humans when we're surrounded by good design, but most humans don't realize that's why they feel good. That's 100% true. Yeah. We're usually not putting giant signs on things like, like hey, this was feel. designed. Yeah, yeah. See all this natural light? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel how the scale of your body <laughs> is proportionate to That's the scale so of the space true. you're sitting? No, like we don't highlight this stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People don't think about it. And so people don't realize how important it is to the pleasure of their day to day life. My favorite side subject is behavioral psychology. And on the whole, if we all learned more about how we work and how we tick and how irrational we all actually are, mm-hmm. it would probably help us make better decisions going into the longer term. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Well, we're about out of time. Blake, thank you very much for making time to sit with us. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.